In the last episode, we talked about how to learn from artists that you love because it's always important when you're learning a craft to look at the things you love and figure out, okay, what is it about these things I love? What can I take from these other artists, these other creators that make me love them that I can also use for what I do. But it's also important to look at artists that you don't usually like because they offer you something very interesting that artists you do generally like maybe don't offer as much, which is they give you sort of two sides of the coin because you're like, well, wait, there's this one artist and they have some songs I like and some I don't like, but it's the same artist. So what is the difference between the songs from them I do like and don't like, because the difference between those two things might offer some insight into what makes me like certain songs and what I really do like in music. Because often, just like with artists, there's it's a very common thing that by the third, fourth, fifth album, artists will start to sort of lose their fans. And the reason tends to be that artists very often don't know what it actually is that listeners like about their music. They will often think it's something that it's not, and the fans will be like, no, that's not what we love about you. It's not the guitars, or it's not the melodies, or what you think it is, or it's not your pop sensibilities. It's this other thing that maybe is harder to define, but something that artists we don't like offer us is an opportunity to sort of dive a little bit deeper and find what the things actually are that separate songs that maybe we do like and don't like. So, we're going to take a stab at that in this episode. We're going to be throwing a lot of questions at you, a lot of things to, to look at. So similar to some other episodes recently, this is very notably not a three things to do type list that we often do here. This is more a throw a bunch of stuff at the wall and whatever resonates with you, great. Um, but you're probably not going to get all of these things. That's okay. Whatever resonates with you, whatever is like, oh, I wouldn't have thought of that otherwise. Hopefully there are some of those. But let's dive right in. Hello, friend. Welcome to another episode of the Songwriter Theory podcast. Today, we're talking about learning from artists that you don't usually like because last week and last week's episode, we talked about how to learn from artists you do like. And the important other side of that coin is learning from artists you don't like because sometimes they can reveal uh, false assumptions that sometimes we make, which uh, I've noticed is a, a huge trend, and it never ceases to amaze me the level of um, how common it is for any form of artist or creator to misunderstand what it is people like about what they do. And you can see this everywhere. Every, anywhere from movie studios, right? They start to think, for example, oh, we can just crank out any superhero movie and the formula is this, right? And they start to get cocky about it and then their movies start to fail. And it's because they might not have really understood why it is that, for example, the MCU got really popular, right? The... the DC Universe is a great example of this, right? They, they, they copied what they thought people liked about the MCU and combined it a little bit with what they thought people liked about the Dark Knight trilogy. Uh, you know, for example, Dark Knight trilogy, real quick. I, 
I think what DC thought is, oh, people like like dark, dark superhero movies, which I don't think is untrue, but I don't think anybody likes or dislikes a superhero movie or any movie just because of how dark it is, right? Just because it's dark doesn't make it good. People don't like it because, like, nobody liked the Dark Knight trilogy because it's dark. They might have thought they did, but those are probably the people who now are like, oh, well, I mean, the DC movies are still dark, but I really don't like them. Well... You know what that shows you? It wasn't really the fact that they were dark that you liked it. It was something else, namely Christopher Nolan, because he's the man. But, um, and also just everything about those, they're cast wonderfully, they were acted just so good. But anyway, I noticed the same thing with musical artists. That's why you get the common, um, the artists that, right, their first album comes out, maybe you're one of the first to discover them, you're so excited. They come out with their sophomore album, uh, which I've noticed is one of two things. Either A, artist's best albums are either their first ones because they had like, you know, 20 years to write songs and it's basically the greatest hits from before they were famous. Um, or their best album is the sophomore one because that's when they sort of found their way with the first album and then the second album, they still have a lot of creativity left. And it's before they start overthinking why people maybe like them. Or maybe before they start worrying about, oh, what makes people like us or not, right? Because then the sophomore album comes out, if it's not as successful, they start overthinking it. And like, oh, well, maybe what they liked was this or this or this. And what what never ceases to shock me is seemingly every artist does not understand why people like them. Which is shown by the fact that almost every artist goes through one of two paths, Either one, a path where they quickly die into irrelevance, um, or two, one where they quote-unquote sell out and eventually they become, you know, they're on pop radio, but all their original fans hate all their new stuff, right? So now what they have is sort of the pop music crowd that likes them, which the pop music crowd generally is sort of just whatever's on the radio they like, so they're not... um, I don't know. They're just a different type of crowd than those that like went out and discovered them when they were small and all that. Uh, not that one's better than the other. Neither is better than the other. They're just different. Um, but it, it just seems to me that it, it, you can always see like the artist really doesn't get why people like them, whether it's that they think, oh, they don't understand. Right. They're like, oh, our guitars sound the same. Why do people not like our songs anymore? Well, you just decided to assume that just because there's a bunch of people who like rock music, who like your music, and you are a rock band, that the reason they like you is like the guitars or something, which might be completely untrue. Some people do like music just because of that. Um, but for other people, right, it might have been specifically some of the guitar work they did and how it was subtle but different than how other artists used it. Maybe it was their lyrics, right? Artists tend to underestimate lyrics a lot, I think, because uh, I, I hear so many people say people don't care about lyrics. And that's true to that. There are a bunch of people who don't and won't notice. Uh, just like there are a bunch of people who won't notice different things you do in your arrangement or all the extra time you spent on a certain part of your melody. You know, there's always things people won't notice. That's a part of being an artist, right? And a lot of times people don't even know why they like an artist, just like an artist don't know why people like them. Uh, I think that's one of the biggest commonalities there are. Uh, even even like, you know, Disney for a while there clearly did not understand why people like Star Wars. They sort of just seem to think we can pump out any 
crap that is like kind of seems like the original trilogy and it will be fine. And then they learned that everybody hates that and it's not fine. Like you can't, you can't just carbon copy. And even though prequels got some hate back in the day, most of us do overall like the prequel era. Why? Because it's different. It didn't just try to copy the, the original trilogy. It was its own thing. It has its own life. Um, but we won't go any farther into star Wars. You're welcome. Non-star Wars fans. So, the two main questions we're asking here are what separates the few songs we do like from the rest of their catalog? And what is similar about the songs you do like from this artist and other music or artists that you like? These are the two things to look at because this is a great way to identify maybe some of those false assumptions we're making, false hypotheses we have on what makes us like something. Just like literally all the things we talked about, right? Like if your hypothesis was, oh, the reason that people like uh, MCU movies is people like universes, which is super reductive and, you know, simple, simplistic, but just for the sake of argument. Because it does kind of feel like the DCEU, the DC, whatever, DC universe assumed somewhat that combined with the darkness of the Dark Knight trilogy. Again, reductive, but let's go with it just for the sake of it. That hypothesis, I think, has been proven wrong, right? It's not the darkness of the Dark Knight trilogy that made people like it. And it's not just the fact that the MCU was a cinematic universe, right? That people liked it. That wasn't why. And that, I think, has been proven by how much people don't like the DC universe. Proven might be a strong word, but it at least has should add a significant amount of doubt. <laughs> like, that's, that's not why people like it. And we want to do the same thing with music. And a great way to do that is identifying same artist, same creative voice, but depending on how they use that voice, I like this and I don't like that. So what separates these two things that I would like one and not like the other? So now we're going to run through a bunch of stuff to look at, think of. Maybe not all of these you're currently able to do. Maybe not all of these are things that you care about some of these you're not going to remember. That's okay. As long as you get some of these things that click with you and you're like, huh, I didn't think of that. Or, you know, next, next time I, uh, one of these comes up where it's like, huh, I usually don't like this artist, but I really like this song. What is it? Maybe one of these will then come back to you and you'll be like, huh, I wonder if the tempo's significantly different, which is going to be one of these, but let's run through them. Keys modes. This is the most obvious place to start, but it might just come down to what key or getting even more in the details, what mode the song is using. Uh, for example, maybe most basic example we can come up with is maybe most of the artist's songs are in a major key. You like darker sounding music, so they have the one song in the minor key and you really like that song. And... I highly doubt, highly doubt that is the one reason that you would like the one song over the other. I, I don't think there's anybody on the planet that just like generally like I don't like major key songs and I do like minor key songs. I don't think there's a person on the planet that that qualifies for, but it's certainly a factor, right? So for me, at least, I know that in rock music, I tend to like darker sounds. So I, I like at least minor key. 
uh, aka Aeolian mode. I like even more the Phrygian mode, which is even darker sounding, because I like dark sounding rock. But when it comes to singer-songwriter style songs, I really don't care. Most of what I write actually is in straight up major key, Ionian. I I darken it a little bit uh, via writing style and stuff, so that's not sickeningly happy, but I kind of like the that melancholy sort of it's it's not like sad it's but it's pensive almost i personally like that song that sound when it comes to both the artists i listen to and the music i choose to write when it comes to stuff that isn't hard rock right so this tends to just be a factor and you might say joseph i don't don't even know what a mode is um and that's okay because next week's episode we're going to talk about modes i've talked about it for a while so i'm putting putting the uh what is it stake in the ground and we're going to talk about modes next week. Um, it took me a while just because trying to figure out how to do it. I think what we're going to do, don't fully hold me to this because if it doesn't work, I'm going to try something else. Uh, I think there's going to be a podcast on breaking down overall sort of the modes at a high level. Um, because as far as modes of the major key, which are really the modes that matter, uh, any super music theory nerd is going to yell at me for saying that, but um, generally speaking, the vast majority of modes you're going to use are going to be the major key based modes, which by the way, include the minor key. Um, there are other modes that are based off of, um, like harmonic minor or whatever, but I, I, those are getting really deep. Maybe someday we'll go that deep in the weeds, but those are, that's kind of getting into the, like the 1% type stuff that very few people are going to use anyway. Um, so we'll talk about that next week, probably podcast to break them down at a high level. Um, and then I think there's going to be videos on each mode to sort of break down each mode a, a little bit more in details on on the YouTube channel, I think is how we're going to handle that. I think that's the best way to, to sort of teach at both the high level and the low level of like each one, um, because you may decide there are certain modes you really like the sound of versus others, um, but generally knowing... Uh, what modes are and sort of how how we get there, how to figure out modes is also very important, regardless of maybe you only end up using the uh, Dorian mode, for instance. Um, so if you don't know right now what, like, modes, what are you talking about? Don't worry about it. Stay tuned for next week, and we'll talk about it then. So next thing is melody. Steps versus leaps. Steps being, you know, from one note to the next note, whether it's up or down, leaps being anything bigger than that. Some melodies tend to be very conversational. Conversational, like a conversation, which I should sound like I'm having a conversation right now, um, just with somebody who can't speak back to me, because, well, you can't speak back to me, right? You, you could be saying horrible things about me right now. I don't know. But but really, I can't hear you. And... Um, unless you email me, then I can hear you just in a different way. Um, but in theory, the way I'm talking is still conversationally, which conversation tends to, you know, go up a little bit and then go down a little bit, but it kind of doesn't have too many crazy leaps, right? In conversation, people don't all of a sudden go like this. What on earth are we talking about? Right? Like that's, that's not how people talk. That would be weird, right? Like that, what, what, like. Like, if somebody said that, you'd be like, what are you doing, man? In fact, you might have said that just as I did that. That's not conversational, right? So that's what we mean by conversational melodies, 
ones that tend to be sort of within a natural pitch range. You're not doing big leaps. You're not going way down low or way up high. You're just sort of all sitting in the middle. Or maybe what what you find is the one song you do like from the artist tends to have an, a really kind of more grandiose sounding melody. It has a lot of leaps and is a little less conversational than what their other songs tend to be. So maybe there's a hint on, huh, maybe this is really a thing that I care about in songs. I thought it was the cool guitars. I thought it was that I like songs to be based around piano. Or I thought that it was the cool rhythms. And again, to be clear, I don't think there's one thing, right? I think it's a con combination of some of these things. And in general, taking a look at the general contour of the melody, which what the contour is put really basically is if you put the notes on sheet music, right, where like it actually physically goes up and down, like the notes so you can physically see generally like leaps versus, you know, going down, going up, like, oh, this is a big leap. This is a small leap. This is a step up. And then if you literally just did connect the dots between the notes, that would be the contour, basically. It's just the idea of rising and falling over time the melody. That's all it is. Because different contours might be something that resonate with you versus not resonating with you. Then there's harmony. What chords are used? And specifically, what chords in the context of the key? Uh, because a, a common misconception that tons of people have is this idea that, like, chords have certain sounds. And that's true-ish. Um, but it's very contextual. Uh, so, for example, to say a C major chord sounds happy, well, that depends. In certain contexts, it wouldn't sound happy. If you just play a C major chord with no context, which is never how music works, right? Like, it's always contextual. Uh, that came out weird. Contextual. Um, so music is always contextual, so it's kind of irrelevant that a C major chord played all by itself sounds, I guess, generally on the happier side. Um, but the reality is if, if you're playing a song in, I don't know, C sharp minor and then play a C major chord, it might sound just really ugly and horrible. Because in the context of the song and the key you're playing in, it might not fit. It might not fit well. And in the context of that key, because you're expecting a C sharp you're not expecting a C. And because of that, you it might end up having this really ugly, horrible sounding C major chord because context is what matters. So specifically when we're talking about harmony, we're talking about harmony and context, right? We're not saying like, oh, it sounds nice because it's over a G major chord. Well, G major chord in the context of what key? Is it a G major chord in the context of a G major key song or in a C major song? Or in a D major song, right? Because a G major chord is going to sound very different. It has different jobs in each of those different keys. In the context of a G major chord, it's the tonic. It's the home one chord. In a C major song, it would be the five chord, which is a very different job than the one chord. In a D major song, it would be the four chord. And if you don't know what any of those mean, uh, go check out my free guide, songwritertheory.com slash music theory guide, I believe is the... URL. Uh, if not, I'll have a link in the description, or regardless, I always have links in the description for these things. That will teach you what I consider the four pillars of music theory that a songwriter needs to know specifically, which starts with 
intervals, which is sort of the building block, the main cornerstone building block that goes into pretty much everything else music theory, such as the main three things, which are keys, chords, and chord progressions. Uh, so it will teach you to understand the words I just said, <laughs> basically, um, which is really important because that's what allows you to understand some of why certain things sound sound how they sound. And it more importantly allows you to be so much more efficient at writing music specifically. It won't help you with lyrics, obviously. Um, but with writing music, it'll make you endlessly more efficient because you don't have to guess anymore. You can start with knowing, for example, like a, uh, I'm going to start improvising in the key of G major, which I can do now because I understand that in the context of the key of G major, I have the G major as my one chord. I have my major five chord is going to be a D major. My major four chord is going to be a C major. If I want that six minor sound, um, then I'm going to go up to my E minor. Uh, I'm a personally a huge fan of a minor three chord. I love the sound of a minor three chord going up to a major four chord. Uh, so in the context of, I forget, I think I said, I think I said G major, right? So in the context of G major, that would be a B minor chord. So B minor up to a C major. I tend to really love that cadence. Um, so all that sort of stuff that will allow you to go from, you know, if you're playing your instrument and you think to yourself, uh, G major and C major sound good together quote, which is again, I mean, it depends. They can very often a key with one of those chords tends to have the other chord as well. Um, but that's not the statement in and of itself is an untrue statement that is not really talking about what actually determines whether they sound good together or not. Um, so if you want to get past that stage and get to the point of like, I understand here are all the tools I have in the context of this key toolbox that I have, um, go check out that guide. Um, so beyond that harmonically are there, but beyond just like the, the Roman numeral chord, right? The one chord or the five chord, which is important. And the, that main first thing to get down beyond that, is there a youth, use of seventh chords, maybe some add chords, sus chords, right? U using a sus chord gives a whole different feel and vibe, like a, a four chord, a normal four chord, major four chord in the context of a major key is going to sound completely different than a sus four chord. I mean, maybe not completely different, but it's going to have a very different sound to it. In fact, a great way, if you feel like your music is starting to get dry, you just use all triads and major minor chords, that's it. A great way to quickly spice up your song is pick one chord and make it more than just a major or minor triad. Make it a sus chord. Make it an add chord. Add a six. Add a two. Make it a seventh chord. Those are great ways to spice up music very quickly. And, you know, depending on genre, some genres use certain chords more and more than others, right? Like blues and jazz, I think, use a ton of seventh chords, which I'm not saying if you like blues and jazz, oh, the reasons you like seventh chords. Again, it's not going to be that simple, but it might be a factor, right? Maybe when you say to yourself, oh, I kind of like that jazzy sounding chord, figuring out, okay, when I say that, what do I mean by that? Like, what is a jazzy sounding chord? And a part of that might be a seventh chord. There's probably more to it than that. 
But figuring out the answer to those these questions is what can help us all determine what is it we really value in music. What what are some of the things that I really like about this artist that I can adapt to what I do? Or in this case, right, what are the things about an artist I normally don't like that they did in this one song or in these couple songs that make me realize, oh, this is a part of what I really like in music that I can adopt and use for myself. So beyond harmony, what else do we have? We have arrangement, and then we'll throw timbre in with it, which timbre is basically just the overall color of the sound. So uh, the, the easiest example for timbre is between instruments. If you have a piano play middle C and a guitar play middle C, it's the same note, but it doesn't sound the same. Why is that? Well, because the timbre of a guitar is different than the timbre of a piano, which is different than the timbre of most keyboard sounds, which is different than the timbre of a violin, which is different than the timbre of an organ. Timbre is really what makes one instrument sound different than another when playing even the same exact note. It's basically what timbre is. So the timbre of a song overall is going to be different based on the different instru instrument choices you made, right? That's why an acoustic cover of a song might sound significantly different than the one that was all electric guitars and, uh, well, electric guitars, <laughs> right? Because uh, usually an acoustic version, let's be honest, is usually just like you take a song that has a lot of electric guitars, you do acoustic guitars. But Or, or if you want to go one step further, right, like a synth. Synth sounds are going to be have a very different timbre than an acoustic guitar. This is, this is why, you know, the arrangement and the timbre are the two main reasons why you can cover a song. And it's the same song, right? The, the melody is the same. The chords are the same usually. AKA harmony is the same. And the lyrics are the same. It's the same song. So why is it that people might like a pop goes punk version of a song versus the original? Well, the reason is the arrangement. The song's not different. Something that people often say that is that low key triggers me um, is, you know, so and so made the song good, right? Like, no, no, no. The song is the exact same. The lyrics are the same. The melody's the same. You know, maybe there's a couple stylistic choices that were slightly different melodically, but generally the actual melody is the same. And in most cases, the harmony is completely the same as well. Now, there are some where they change it up a little bit, right? But nothing to make it go from like, oh, the song was bad before and it's great now. What that reveals is you just like the arrangement of that differently. So sorry to spoil it for you, but if you think, oh, I don't like Taylor Swift, but you like all of the Taylor Swift songs that are pop goes punk, you actually like Taylor Swift songs. You just don't like her arrangements of her songs. Um, so... Sorry to burst the bubble, but that's not how it works. So anyway, um, so arrangement and timbre kind of go together in this context anyway. So what are the main body instruments that they use? And what I mean by main body instruments, when you close your eyes and you just listen to the song, and if you were to really just pick out, like, what, what's the main thing I hear? Is it wall of electric guitar power chords? Is it piano? Or maybe it's predominantly strings. Or maybe most of what you hear are synth arpeggios, right? Those are sort of your main body instruments. The, the, the main things that you think, if you were to take away one instrument at a time, always taking away the least important instrument one at a time, 
when you're left with three or four instruments, what's left? Right? Where like, what are the instruments that if you had four musicians playing on stage, what parts are being played that are most important to the song? So what are the instruments being used there? What, what instruments are handling the, bow, the bass? What about the low mids, the high mids, the highs? Uh, do they use strings and supplemental roles, right? Do they, the quintessential sort of like rock song that adds strings, right? That makes a big difference in the arrangement and the timbres. Like a lot, I have some friends that are convinced that what makes them like certain rock music over others is rock music that involves strings. And they love the sound of rock music with strings, which to be fair, I also like the sound of rock music with strings, but I also, it, it's not a reason I like, it's just, it is a sound sonic thing that I like as well. So I get it. Um, but these are all things that might affect how much we like certain songs over others, right? Because again, the whole pop goes punk thing or, or, or any of those type of things, right? Covers, the jazz cover of a pop song or any of those. All of those things, what they reveal is, is the difference between an arrangement of a song and the song itself or a track, a specific recording of a song and the song itself. Because the song is the exact same. It's a cover song. That's why, that's why you know, the original artist gets money from that. Because it is their song. The song was not intrinsically changed. Uh, which really, I guess you consider that a bonus tip in here. Finding songs where you actually like covers better than the original, or you don't like cover the cover as much as the original, figuring out why that is. Because in that case, it's the exact same song. Um, so that might even be even more helpful. Next, tempo. Tempo makes a huge difference in feel. Uh, the quick version of this is really just like... This is not completely true, but largely the difference between punk rock and rock is just that punk, punk rock is at a faster tempo. There's more to it, right? Punk tends to uh, have like all downstrokes on the guitar and very driving feel and they play on every beat and, or eighth notes or whatever and tends to be more simplistic. And punk rock tends to be like anti-establishment, teenage rebel stuff, Um so there's more to it, but one of the main sonic differences is largely in the tempo. Um, the rest is really not that different to the point that for me personally, I can't stand the sound of punk. I dislike everything about punk just on a personal level. Um, so anytime there's a rock song that bleeds a little bit into punk, like instant dislike, there's just something about that higher tempo teenagery sounding rock that we're going to talk about prom and some anti-establishment thing. Like, I'm just like, ugh, I just, come on, really? Especially when it's like 40-year-olds playing it. It's just weird. But anyway, <laughs> my personal biases aside, um, the, the idea here is, look, tempo makes a difference, right? It absolutely does. It's, it's like if you've ever played in a band, right? And sometimes somebody will say something like, oh, the song just feels like it's dragging or, you know, you'll go too fast with the song and then people, it's just, it just doesn't feel good. The playing, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel like it sounds good. And it's literally just because you were rushing that the whole song just doesn't, it almost like starts to lose how, like how good you thought it was and then how 
good the song sounds, because again, the song intrinsically is the same, but how good the song sounds if you speed up the tempo by 10 BPM is going to be significantly different. Um, like small differences in tempo make a huge difference. Uh, really, even as much as 10 apart is making a significant difference in the sound of the song, uh, especially when we get into the 20s and stuff. Now we're talking huge. Um, which, by the way, bonus tip here. When you're recording music, if you can record uh, a MIDI part first, um, because the beauty of MIDI is it's just information, right? So you can change the tempo and not re-record it, and it will sound fine. If you record a guitar and then change the tempo, it will sound terrible, usually. Don't do that. So try to record the mid some MIDI instruments for a song first, sing along with the song, uh, and then adjust the tempo up and down by little bits, right? If it feels a little draggy, try bumping it up by two. Still feel draggy, bump it up by two or four. I tend to start with going up and down by four until I zero in on the right spot and then maybe go up or down by two. Um, bonus tip there. Next, rhythm. Syncopation versus no syncopation. Starting the melodic phrases at the start of the measure, right? Right away on the one beat. Or maybe the melodic phrases tend to start before the measure. Some start a little after, right? If it's before or after, it's usually a good sign of syncopation. Not always. Uh, most songs have some things that are syncopated and some not, which really just syncopation means with the strong beats and no syncopation. Um, or sorry, sorry. No <laughs> syncopation means not with, not with the strong beats. No syncopation would mean uh, with the strong beats. If you're familiar with something like, say, old hymns, Hymns don't have syncopation at all. It's all da, 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 right? So uh, I believe most like American songbook type stuff also, uh, if I'm remembering correctly. I'm trying to think, actually think of an American songbook song in my head. Um, but the tendency is older music um, tended to not have syncopation. New music tends to be riddled with syncopation. Um, so rhythm. Pitch ranges, vocal pitch ranges, right? Maybe the song, the, the singer normally sings all high the whole time uh, and it just gets ir irritating to you or, or you, uh, you know, it just doesn't do it for you because there's no variation. They're just singing high constantly. So it's almost exhausting to listen to because much of the same. Or maybe you like that, right? Maybe you don't like big adventurous changes in, in the pitch range from the verse to the chorus and you're like, ugh. Okay, we get it. You jumped up by an octave again, right? These are all, again, things that make a big difference or can make a big difference. Maybe you don't care about this, right? There are some things on this list that I don't care about very much versus I do care a lot about. And then your list is going to be different, right? So it's all about figuring out things that maybe make a difference for you. Instrumentation pitch ranges. This is another thing. It's easy to just be like, oh, it has guitars. Well, okay, but what job is the guitar doing? Right? There's a big difference in the sound of guitars doing arpeggios in the mid-high range versus guitars doing power chords. Right? Those sound completely different. They're both electric guitar. They might even have the same exact effects on it. Right? A little bit of compression, a little bit of distortion. Can be the exact same guitar with the exact same pedals or however you're recording it. The way you play it and the pitch range you play it in is going to make a huge, huge difference. So, 
you know, guitars not operating using power, you know, lower power chords that fill out sort of the, the mid lows and instead doing arpeggios that are more in the high range. Or maybe you're doing arpeggios in the lower range, right? All these things make a difference. The pitch ranges the instruments are in because part of it is that the pitch range somewhat connects to the roll, uh, right? So, for example, uh, a string part, maybe a cello or a double bass uh, operating sort of in the bass range, it might even replace the more traditional for probably most of our music, electric bass, right? You might have a string sound there instead. I've gotten in the habit of using a, a low organ sound down there, usually as a supplementary role to sort of fill it in. I kind of like the combo of both, but, you know, some song I might decide, nah, I don't even need an electric bass. I have this organ covering that sound, which is partially determined by the pitch range that it's being played in. You can't say, oh, it's the bass line, even though it's at middle C, right? It's, it's kind of determined by the range that it's in. Song structure. Does it use a pre-chorus, right? Maybe maybe you really like that transition of, of you know, you have a verse, you have a pre-chorus that builds a little bit, and then a chorus that builds even more. Maybe you like that that step motion and, and energy, right? That little step up, little step up. Or maybe the opposite. You really like the huge leap in energy from going straight from a really calm verse to a huge chorus. Or bridge. How, how's the bridge work, right? Does it have a guitar solo in the bridge versus a vocal in the bridge? Right? Maybe you don't really like when songs add even more lyrical, melodic content. You really like guitar solos, right? If you're a guitarist, you might be somebody who mourns the fact that, you know, a bridge that operates as a sort of place for the guitarist to shine and to hear your favorite guitarist rip a sweet solo seems like it's getting less and less all the time, right? It's more and more rare, um, especially the closer you get to pop, the more it's completely gone, right? Obviously, if you, the farther you go away from anything that would be considered at all poppy, um, is very different, right? That's where you get 12 minute songs that are just one solo to the next. Um, but, but generally speaking, as far as more popular side of things go, and when I say more popular, I'm not talking like Maroon 5. I'm talking like stuff like even Star Set or Breaking Benjamin. That's like, it's not pop music unless you just divide music as classical versus pop, which is a very ridiculous way to divide things. But um, the only way you would call that pop, right? Like Breaking Benjamin is only pop or disturbed is only pop if there's literally two genres, classical and pop, um, basically. But I'm talking even artists like that, right? Back in the day, there were more and more solos and stuff. Now it feels like you got to go to a concert to get a solo. But maybe you prefer having a solo in the bridge over the sound of, you know, uh, oh boy, the vocalist has more to say. Great. Or maybe an intro that is very unrelated to the rest of the song, right? This is, this is something that um, certain rock artists I've noticed tend to make good use of is sort of that, that intro that isn't just the instrumentation of the verse, right? Because a lot of times in pop music, either A, they start with the chorus, or B, there's no intro, or C, the intro is literally like two measures of like, hey, here's the music, that is going to be the backdrop of the verse. Very common to do. Nothing wrong with that. I actually happen to 
like that methodology a lot because usually when I write songs, it tends to be around a piano hook that I really like. Um, and that's a great way to kind of let the piano hook shine for a second before the vocal somewhat covers it up. Um, so nothing wrong with that. Right. But again, it's about asking these questions, really diving into these songs, figuring out, okay, what is it really that makes me like this song from the artist when I don't like all these other songs? And then last lyrical subject matter. Hopefully you're somebody who does care about lyrics. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, because uh, if you've been listening for any amount of time at all, <laughs> you know that I think lyrics are incredibly important. Um, just if your lyrics don't have anything meaningful to say, why the heck should I waste my time listening to a song? Is kind of my thought process, um, which is kind of unfortunate because if any of you are, or hopefully those of you, which is hopefully most of you, who are more or less with me on the importance of lyrics, um, as you probably know, and maybe you have a different experience than I do, but at least for me, lyrics are the biggest bottleneck to me writing a ton of songs. Music is, relative to lyrics, super easy, I think. I mean, you can literally improvise music that sounds pretty good, right? Like, if you're a decent instrumentalist who understands the basics of music theory, like those four pillars talk about in the free guide, if you understand those things, you can sit at your instrument that you're competent enough with and play music that is generally pleasing to the ear that will get, in my case, my mom would always come up to me and be like, oh, that sounds beautiful. What is that? And I'd be like, mom, I'm just improvising. I don't, I don't know what it is. Uh, I was a teenager. Give me a break. I, I was a little sassy, okay? It's, it's, I'm nice to my mom. Don't at me. <laughs> um, but um, that that's something you probably experienced, right? And And I'm not saying that every second of those three hours is worthy of becoming a song. But if you improvise for three hours and you change things up a bit, I bet you can easily get the seeds of four, five, six, seven songs that are pretty baller. Uh, so writing music tends to not be the hard part. Um, I think writing great lyrics is a, a much harder thing to do. Um, that's why I'm kind of jealous of my friends who just write like EDM music that doesn't have lyrics. I'm like, that's awesome. Like I would never like lyrics go. I love lyrics, but man, I mean, like, I think I'd crank out at least a song a week <laughs> if it weren't for lyrics. So that part's kind of depressing. So I'm jealous of them in that, in that sense. Um, but anyway, lyrical subject matter, right? Literally, it might come down to most of their songs are about, you know, I loved you, you left me, and now I'm ticked. And maybe the one song you like from them, you realize, oh, they're actually talking about um, something different has nothing to do with love or it's a different type of love, right? Maybe it's, it's love for your kid instead of, you know, love for somebody who broke up with you. Um, you know, maybe it's an added maturity to the lyric, or maybe you like the less mature lyrics. Um, you know, m maybe, maybe where a band lost you is you liked their rebellious punk days and now they're adults with kids and they're talking about, um, certain things that you're like, I don't want to hear about that. I like, I, I like you for escapism and for kind of going back to my high school days for a hot second. Um, thinking about prom, right? Like maybe that's why you like them. Um, so what, what themes are they talking about? Or even style You can dive deep into the stylistics of the lyrics, right? How much, how much they rhyme. Like, for example, I, I, 
I hate Train. <laughs> I hate Train so much. And most of why I hate Train is they're completely nonsensical lyrics, where it's very obvious they were just like, hey, can we get three words in a row that rhyme, even though it makes no sense whatsoever? Like, Hey Soul Sister is just... <sighs> like, it should be a joke. It's, it's not, but it should be. I mean, just it's so obvious that they just crammed in words that don't are are not what they're meaning to say, really. They are at best tangential, right? Like left side brains. Really what you mean is the left side of her head. And you call it left side brains just so that it rhymes with, uh, I don't know, whatever the rest of the lyric is. Point being, right, you probably also have certain things that lyrically do it for you and lyrically make you hate the entire song no matter how much you like the rest of it. Right. And literally irritating rhymes can be it. Right. Like uh, that. I, I mean, I don't think I pretty much everything about Hey Soul Sister irritates me, but um, the rhyming is is where it goes from like normal pop song that I'm like, it's kind of annoying to just sheer hatred um, for, for me. Right. So, again, for you figuring out diving even a little deeper of like literally the way they rhyme, how often they rhyme, how corny their rhymes are, uh, how lengthy their their lines tend to be. Right. Um, you know, are they more wordy or are they less wordy? Maybe you like kind of wordy lyrics. Maybe you really hate when lyrics get wordy and you're like really short, simple to the point. So lyrics are going to be a part of it, too. And again, all this in the context of, and I think these are important questions to ask in general, just period with, you know, stuff you like versus stuff you don't like, trying to figure out why. Um, but specifically investigating artists where you don't like most of their stuff, but then there's that one song, or then there's those five songs or two songs that you do like, really diving in. And trying to figure out what is it really about those that separate them from the others. Because a lot of times, it's not going to end up being, oh, they're just good songs. Because I've noticed another common uh, criticism I hear that I think is unfair. It's kind of like, uh, there, there are several criticisms that I think tend to be unfair ones that are just completely biased. Um, and one of them is when people say, oh, it's boring. Usually boring is code word for I don't like it and I want to insult it, but I don't really have any actual criticism. I'm just going to lay, lay out like a, a word that is like a trump card. Um, and which is why, if you remember a bunch of episodes back, I once did criticize a song. Part of my criticism was boring or maybe it was pop some normal some pop music in general right now. And I think I instantly was like, and I kind of hate myself for saying that because normally I don't consider this a valid criticism um, because a lot of times it's not. Um, but in a similar way, uh, so something that you hear a lot or, or I notice a lot is sort of this conflation of, well, the biggest one is just conflation of good versus I like it. And it's important to remember that your one-hit wonder artist, somebody else knows every single lyric they've ever written and loves all of them, right? And just assuming that you just have better taste than they do is not good, right? None of us should assume that. And look, we, we all do that to an extent, right? Of course I've done that to an extent. I'm, I'm far from perfect here. 
Um, and, but it is something that we need to keep in mind that what we don't want to do is just assume like, oh, well, they only have one good song, right? I've heard that a ton. I remember the guy who, uh, which great guy, nothing against him, but for whatever reason, this stood out to me where he said something about to him, he thought, um, that disturbed was a, a one hit wonder and they only wrote one good song. And whether you think that's true or not, I remember thinking, well, they have a pretty big fan base that would disagree because that whole big fan base is not just there for down, down with the sickness, right? That They're not there for that. They can sing with all of the songs, right? So whether that's true or not, there's a lot of people that wouldn't agree with that, right? And some of the artists that he liked, I bet they would say about that artist, right? And, and a, a part of what makes me specifically um, notice this is that a lot of my favorite bands are bands that as far as radio play were quote unquote one hit wonders. And I actually investigated the rest of their music and I was like, Oh, I really like all this. This is great. It's not that different than the single that everybody knew and liked. Um, so, so be careful of that trap, be careful of that trap. Um, and, and, and go into this with assuming that, it's not that the artist wrote one or two good songs and those are the two songs you like, but instead trying to figure out, uh, you know, what it, what it is we are biased towards that we personally like that that makes us like those, which is not to say that it might it might be correct that they did only write one or two good songs. That, that, might, that might be true. I'm not discounting that either. Uh, just for the healthiness of this exercise and helping yourself figure out what what it is we need to figure out from this exercise of learning from artists we don't usually like, the big key is making sure that we don't go in with that assumption. Hope this was helpful to you. I appreciate every single one of you. You've been leaving reviews, which is super helpful. I love that. So if you can and you haven't been helped by these podcasts, be sure to leave a five-star review on iTunes. No, no, I keep saying iTunes. On Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you listen to. I, I don't know if any others actually do that. I think some do. But like whatever one you use, if you can leave a rating, if you could leave a five star rating, that would be super helpful to me if this is helpful to you. And also be sure to pick up that free guide I mentioned. It's a songwritertheory.com slash music theory guide link in the description. It is going to teach you just those four pillars. You absolutely have to know um, just absolutely necessary. And more music theory is helpful. Uh, as Rick Beato has preached for years and years and years on YouTube um, and is 100% right about music. Tons of music theory is helpful. I think diving much deeper is something really helpful, which next week we will do in the form of modes, um, modes of the major key specifically, uh, which does include the minor key, a.k.a. the Aeolian mode. Um, But a great place to start to gain the foundation that is absolutely necessary are just those four pillars that are taught in that free guide so be sure to check that out if you haven't all ready thank you for listening i appreciate every single one of you and i will talk to you in the next one